The History Chicks field trip season is starting up again. We're headed for a long weekend in Washington, D.C. this April. You can find all the details at likemindstravel.com. We hope to see you there. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the History Chicks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to wrap up our coverage of Frances Perkins, and I have to say it's best if you go back to part one and then part two to catch up with her story. But as it's been a couple of weeks since part two, let's really quickly remind you of where we left off with Frances Perkins. The Great Depression has begun. And our statistician, researcher, brainiac, and no-nonsense having Frances Perkins has publicly gone to the mattresses with the Hoover administration, who were attempting some optimistic messaging. Prosperity is round the corner, to which our Miss Perkins retorted, where did you get that information from? Because what I've seen here is quite different, and I have the numbers to prove it. So embarrassed and enraged was President Hoover that years and years later, when they happened to be on the same platform at an event, he took pains not to look at her, shake her hand, or otherwise acknowledge her existence in any way. And he was not her only enemy. She was making life difficult for the cutters of corners and the corrupt in the world. And she was forced to deal with things like stalkers a horrible barrage of poison pen letters, and at least one assassination attempt. A man came into her offices looking for Francis, and he had a knife. He asked her secretary, where is she? And the secretary was like, she's not here. So the man grabbed the closest person he could and stabbed that person. At just about this time, Francis is coming out of the ladies' room and sees what's going on, helps defuse the situation, Call the police, get the police involved, get the man taken away. The guy that he had attacked was ultimately fine. And the thing about Francis is this. Francis knew that the assailant had come to her because he was upset about things that were happening at his workplace. So she went so far as to make sure that his wife and family were taken care of while he was incarcerated and under medical care. She had been warning of the dangers inherent in the country's decline from malnutrition to lack of education, to children being sent back to work in order for the family to survive, to the violence and disease caused by overcrowding. Opportunistic employers were again preying on the weakest. The sweatshop system had come roaring back. Francis warned that the country was going into a downward spiral. When the family pocketbook is empty, the neighborhood stores are empty. They cannot buy from the wholesaler or manufacturer, and the manufacturer cannot buy from the basic industries that supply him with tools and raw materials. The wheels stop. More workers are laid off or cut to lower than subsistence wages, so they're also forced to stop buying. Like the ripples eddying out from the pebble dropped into a pool, the circle grows until it's reached every part of the social structure. The spring of economic life has dried up at its source. Francis wanted to roll out an unemployment insurance program in the state of New York. She had it all drafted up, but it was something so progressive that even FDR had to look into it some more. New York State became the first state to appoint a committee to study unemployment, although Wisconsin would be the first state to offer unemployment insurance to its citizens. New York wasn't really that far behind. 
And Francis was becoming an expert on all things unemployment insurance, not just in New York State, but across the country. So the president, old Mr. Hoover, was against what he called federal government paternalism. But FDR, powerful governor of New York, was the polar opposite of him philosophically and decided to make some changes on the state level. He had that committee studying compulsory unemployment insurance, an old age pension scheme for those over 70, and had put together some long range plans to combat unemployment itself. Francis often told him that unemployment is not the disease. Unemployment is the symptom of the disease. Sir, we have to go deeper. That was her background in research. You know, find the reason. Just don't treat the symptom. It's stellar. She's always like that. So her experience and her strong views on the subject led her to be invited to speak at the International Unemployment Conference in Holland. And ever the multitasker, while she was over there, she thought she would take her daughter on a little trip to England. And sir, while I'm in England, (laughs) as the multitasking fact-finding person that she was, she said, I'm going to investigate Britain's unemployment program. It's been around for over a decade and we'll have some vital statistics to look at. It was called the Unemployment Insurance Act of 1920, but the common people referred to it simply as the Dole, D-O-L-E. I think I would like to see how it's administered. And FDR was all about it. Their system was 15 weeks of pay for unemployed people. And although it was becoming increasingly a little bit unpopular, every single person Francis talked to said that the dole saved England after World War I. Of course, they called it the Great War (laughs) as they hadn't had World War II yet. So, but over and over she heard the dole was what saved us. The dole was what brought us out of despair. That's what got us over the hard parts. And she was very inspired by this. It should be noted, and she noted it too, women were paid 20% less than men, the exact same 15-week period. I never understand that, but but there you go. I mean, the breadwinners, you know. I, I mean, I understand it. I don't obviously agree with it. I mean, well, and I'm also thinking after World War One, there were significantly less men. True. And a lot of women head of households. That's a good point. So that excuse was already aged. Yeah, true. Back home, the country was in turmoil. Unemployment had reached almost 24 percent. And of course, underemployment was very common. Thousands of banks had failed. And guess what? There was no insurance for account holders. Not until 1933 at least not on the federal level. Some farm states, again with the progressive West, um, some states had some state schemes for bank insurance. But alas, if you didn't live in those states, you were in desperate situations if your bank failed. Mm -hmm. Newspapers uh, were called Hoover Blankets now. Congregations of thousands of formerly working and middle-class people lived in impromptu villages called Hoovervilles. Almost a million homes had been foreclosed on. Things were very bad. And guess what else? There was no social safety net. You had private charities. You had family members. And if you were very, very lucky, some help from an enlightened local government. But there was widespread insecurity and frightened people all over the nation. The people desperately needed a change from what was happening. 
And along comes the presidential election of 1932. So FDR and the Democratic Party decides that he is the man for the job and he is going to run for president against Herbert Hoover. Francis Perkins, as well as other trusted staffers, were often big contributors to his speeches because they were the architects of his philosophies. (laughs) So that makes total sense. During some early campaign events, Francis Perkins noticed something. So everybody in the hall would be fired up with hope and optimism. This man was really good at speechifying. The band would play Happy Days Are Here (laughs) Again. You know that song. Um, Woo! Yay! People were clapping. Everyone was standing up. It's a country for all. No one will be left out. When there is starvation of spirit and body in a land of abundant natural resources, my friends, a land of plenty, there is no further evidence needed of a failure of the powers entrusted with control of government. You know, yeah! And they would (laughs) scream, applause, applause. And then FDR, you know, waves, he's done and begins to make his slow, some say painful, way off stage. Remember, FDR had been suffering from the effects of polio for years. Francis Perkins, who is ever so good at reading a room, noticed the energy dropping and called the women that had been sitting around here, come on, ladies, let's go congratulate him right now. And they swarmed the stage. And under the guise of shaking his hand, And he was speaking to these enthusiastic supporters that rushed the stage. The audience sees not a weak man, not an unhealthy man, but a popular candidate, a magnet for the audience, an inspiration. So effective was this technique. Um, So burnishing of his reputation that his campaign adopted this nationwide. Supporters would rush the stage right after his speeches. FDR, in his speeches, promised the country a new deal. The forgotten man, the little man, was going to be dealt a better hand of cards to play with. And I have to be completely honest, I did not know that new deal was literally, well, metaphorically referring to a card game. Oh! Like, dealing cards. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, I, I did know that because it gives you a fresh hand. It's a whole new game when you give a new deal. Yep, makes sense. Well, FDR won that election in a absolute landslide. Francis called it, quote, a vote against the Depression. It was almost uh, it was almost just a given that, you know, even if people didn't want to vote for FDR, they definitely wanted to vote against the situation that was currently happening. Whatever it was, they wanted out. As soon as he's elected, everybody knows he needs to put together a cabinet. All of the people who have been advising him for all these years are coming to him and saying, you need to appoint Francis Perkins as your secretary of labor. Everybody's coming at him. Men are coming at him. Women are coming at him. There's a woman named Molly Dusen. She was a suffragist and a feminist activist. She had worked towards his election by driving women to the polls. She organized speeches leading up to the election. When she's communicating with the women of America, it wasn't about FDR being charming and, you know, handsome and doesn't he light up a room? No, she's talking to them about real issues that are impacting these women's lives now. She said, we appeal to the intelligence of the country's women. Ours were economic issues and we found the women ready to listen. So Molly Dusen was really involved in the campaign and in the circle. And she went to Francis and she said, you have to take this. 
And Francis is like, no one's offered me anything. And she said to her, don't be such a baby, Francis. You do the right thing. I'll murder you if you don't. This Miss Dusen also wrote to every prominent woman in every possible sphere, asking them to also send letters to FDR requesting that Francis be nominated as Secretary of Labor or send him a telegram, whatever fills his inbox with messages about this. And so here he is getting message after message about Frances Perkins, and he knows her. Of course he knows her. He's worked with her closely for years. Well, Frances was sort of not willing to be enthusiastic about this because, and, and she had the right of it, Hoover had almost put a woman in his own cabinet, but at the last minute he psyched her, you know, like, oh, never mind. after it had gotten out and it had been publicly bandied about and it was very embarrassing for the woman in question and in fact derailed her career. It was disheartening. And anytime somebody brought that up to Francis, she would say Franklin would never do that, though. So is it that thing where you pretend you don't want something because you think it's not going to happen? Um, She definitely wanted to spare herself the same disappointment and derailment. Certainly. And I don't know if she's that kind of person to put on that. Oh, no, not me. But she also had real issues with her family. Her daughter was a teenager. Her husband is in and out of hospitals. They are settled in New York City, and neither one of them is going to be willing to relocate to Washington, D.C. She has been traveling the 152 miles from Manhattan up to Albany for 10 years now. She knows how hard a commuting job is. This is even harder. So that had to be weighing on her, too, right? Well, and then he wrote her a note saying goodbye And you think this might be the opportunity? And it said, I am grateful for the fine work you've done. I know of the difficulties you've met, the fine way of which you've handled them. I know you must have a tremendous feeling of satisfaction in what you've accomplished. Okay, but there's nothing, there's (laughs) not an invitation, certainly, or a promise or a hint or anything. And eh, hmm. when people kept wanting to have, or I mean, give dinners for Francis, she would accept if no one mentioned FDR or the position at all, or she wouldn't come. You'll read that FDR was straight up manipulated into hiring Francis Perkins. We even joked about it a little in the last episode, but FDR was not a stupid man. And he'd actually considered at least one other woman for his cabinet. Um, Sorry to say it does seem to be a one and done deal. He never considered having two. No, it was at some level a symbolic gesture. But nevertheless, in the words of Eleanor Roosevelt herself, if any woman in the world was equipped by experience and ability to be the first woman cabinet member, Frances Perkins certainly was. And so close personal friend and former boss Franklin Delano Roosevelt asked Frances Perkins to meet him to formally offer her a position in his cabinet. I've been thinking things over, Francis, and I want you to be the Secretary of Labor. And immediately, just like she did when she started working for him in New York, she began coming up with objections. They need me in New York. Dudes are lined up for your job, Francis. (laughs) We'll be all right. And you've set us up so well. Also, the country needs you. Labor doesn't want me. Labor doesn't want anyone. What I want is not to have the AFL and the CIO saying to me that I picked one of their favorites and the other guy got left out. I need someone in the middle. It should be one of the women from the labor movement. Francis, 
You have a duty to America. He's almost like preying on her vulnerability. Who can fix it if not you? If you say no right now, you are letting the entire country down, each and every person. And there was a bit of a a stare down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Francis has been studying him and working with him and learning what buttons to push to get him to do things and how to approach him. But he's been doing the same thing to her. So it was a very equal conversation in that stare down. But Francis had unconsciously or consciously been preparing for this moment for a very long time. Francis was one of those people that whenever she had an idea, she jot it down and stick it in a drawer because she's focused on something else. She can't put her attention to it right then. Maybe she'd come up with a solution in the shower. She'd jot it down and put it in the drawer and address it later. Well, with this opportunity in front of her, she kind of takes the drawer out and dumps it on the desk and pulls the problems and solutions out and puts them together and creates a list to present to FDR and say, this is what I want to accomplish. I will not take this job unless you support me on all of this. This is what we need to do to fix what's wrong with this country. And she rattles it off. Now, in the movies, you would have that scroll where the end falls to the floor and it rolls. (laughs) I want a 40-hour work week. I want a minimum wage. I want an end to child labor. I want a social security program. I want unemployment insurance backed by direct federal aid. I want a federal workers' compensation position. And I also would like a universal health insurance. Those are all my conditions. Speak now, sir. You've got it. He said, I'll support you on everything. Well, all right then. I'll do it. (laughs) There's another bit of a stare down. And then he starts laughing and he goes, I suppose you'll nag and nag at me until each and every one of those things is accomplished. And she said, yes, Mr. President, I will. It's 1933. She is 52 years old at this point, and she is suddenly going to be the very first woman appointed to a presidential cabinet. She is 10th in line in succession to the presidency. I mean, the chances of it getting down there are slim, but that's a big deal. He later joked about that. It was during wartime and they had actually gathered together in a different location to do an inauguration. This is like jumping way forward. And he said, wow, if the Germans bomb us now, looks like we've got our first woman president. Because everybody (laughs) else that was higher than she was. What was that TV show? Uh, Designated Survivor. Yep, yep. Where the Secretary of Agriculture, I think, became the president. Wasn't he agriculture? Yeah, I don't. I just remember the commercials. I didn't actually watch it. Like someone who thought he was going to spend his night eating crab legs and watching the inaugural on TV ended up being the president. Right, right. Well, so Frances certainly had her detractors. Some of her future colleagues said this feminine secretary is going to sink the ship of state and also said that her nomination was nothing more than a gesture for the benefit of the wives and sweethearts of America. Blurgity blur. (laughs) Well, in a way, she kind of did. 
Francis said, the overwhelming argument and the thought which made me do it in the end, in spite of personal difficulties, was the realization that the door might not be open to a woman again for a very long time. And that I had kind of a duty to other women to walk in and sit down in the chair that was offered. That goes back to her grandmother's philosophy. That couldn't have been more clear. Mm -hmm. If someone opens the door for you, walk through it. Yep. And leave so, it open for um, the next woman. <laughs> that, Grandma didn't say that part. No. <laughs> That's Francis's own yeah, yeah. little addendum. Put a little wedge underneath the door. <laughs> that first cabinet meeting was something else. Now, the optics were a little sketch at the beginning. Uh, there was a certain symbolism to the fact that the Secretary of Labor was seated as far away from the president as one could go. But that actually wasn't necessarily a diss. The, they're, they're sat in order of seniority from the first developed cabinet to the, you know, to the last. And at the time, the Labor Department had been the most recent. She was only the fourth person to hold the position. Woodrow Wilson had started it in 1913, so 20 years earlier. It's a newbie job. And there are significant more cabinet positions that come after that. So the Secretary of Labor is not the furthest away anymore. <laughs> not these days. Well, during that meeting, Frances remained mostly quiet. Her colleagues, get this, openly passed each other notes about her across the table. How old are we? How old are we? Ugh. And she said about this meeting, I tried to have as much of a mask on as possible. I knew that to men, a lady interposing an idea into men's conversation was very unwelcome. I would be an orderly sort of woman who didn't buzz buzz all of the time. And she simply would make notes on their behavior and add them to her red envelope that was titled Notes on the Male Mind. <laughs> I absolutely hate that she felt this was necessary, yeah. even at this high level. And even this late, it just kills me. I know. But how satisfying to make that observation and stick it in the red envelope. You know, just emotionally felt like you were doing I know, something. Like the red envelope is her. Sometimes when you're in a conference call and you have your private chat up with your work <laughs> best friend yeah. and you could be like, really with this? I know, blah, blah, blah. Well, she didn't have one. So it had to be the red and envelope. The red envelope. <laughs> well, also, she seemed to be subscribing to one of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's relatives' philosophies. Theodore Roosevelt's philosophy, when it came to foreign policy and I think domestic policy too, his view was that you should speak softly and carry a big stick. Well, Frances Perkins' mind was the big stick <laughs> and she was going to bring it to bear on all of this. And so it didn't pain her to speak softly for a while. On Inauguration Day in March of 1933, it was actually the very last March inauguration. Now it's been moved to January. It was the inauguration where FDR gave the famous quote, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, which was not written until the seventh draft of that speech. Anyway, on the day of the inauguration, Francis had brought Susanna to witness this historic moment. And unfortunately, she wasn't aware of protocols and places and that there was going to be so much traffic and people and what lines that she as a cabinet member was supposed to stand in. Imagine this, Frances Perkins, cabinet member, dashing across a lawn in her heels and 
proper tricorn hat because she had waited in the wrong line and cabinet members were supposed to go in around the other side of the building. So what <laughs> frustration and it's just like almost slapstick, like, oh, I got to go here. Things kept being a little rough to start with because she got to her new office. Is it the steam pipe trunk distribution venue? <laughs> I don't know that reference. I would love anyone who got that without Googling 10 points to whatever house of your choice. <laughs> okay. I am personally giving you a shout out. Please write in if you know that illusion. Okay, well, I'm not the person that knows it, but I do know that Francis showed up at her office and the old guy was still there. He thought, she, oh, what? I said, oh, oh, <laughs> I thought she meant like, oh, I messed up. He thought that she was going to go home for the weekend to New York after getting, you know, after the inauguration. And she's like, no, I, this is my secretary. I brought her from New York. She's doing this with me and you're in my office. So why don't you go to lunch? And while the guy was gone, she had someone pack up his office because it wasn't his office. It was her office. And the office was just full of all kinds of, well, junk, literal junk. They were physically cleaning up the space, but also lots of shady dealings with all the departments that the Department of Labor oversaw. Is one point she showed up in the middle of the night to check something. And all of these men that were working in her offices were clearing out files in the middle of the night. So she had to go get a guard and get these guys escorted out and have the locks changed because they were trying to get rid of all the evidence of things that had been going on in the department that were just not above board. Man, I actually think that that secretary of labor position did not have a very good reputation. No. Before she got there. No, it didn't. It was yeah. extraordinarily corrupt. You know, lots of bribes going on, lots of dealings with um, you know, organized crime, lots of hand, what's it called? <laughs> what's it called? When you pay money, hand greasing, lots of greasing of the palms. There we go. Mm. Yeah, it was no, it was not good. And she literally had to clean, but figuratively had to clean house. I mean, there's cockroaches because people were keeping their lunches in their desks and there was cockroaches invading the whole place. She had to get it fumigated. And one of the first things she did is those lunches were being kept in their desks because people of color were not allowed to eat in the cafeteria. So she abolished that rule. Everybody eats in the cafeteria. Nobody is to be turned away. See, it all worked out. Yeah. I hope. I read Amy Poehler's book and she talks about how the men of Saturday Night Live used to pee in jars and stick them around their office. This is gross. Because they were too lazy to walk down the hall to the bathroom. And she's like, what is happening to my life oh my that God. I work in an office? Like, oh, my gosh. So, disgusting. Francis Perkins, you had cockroaches, but it could have been worse. Oh, my gosh. It definitely could have been. <laughs> well, I mean, and she, the, just, she was just off to a rough start. The press was hounding her. It was a historic position she was in. But they wanted to know things like what was she interested in and just, you know, surface things about her. And she's like, is this necessary? And they said, well, what should we call you? There's no precedent here. Should we call you Mrs. Wilson, Miss Perkins? What? And the headline of the New York Times gave the answer. It said, Madam Secretary, Miss Perkins' choice. So Madam Secretary was her thing. 
I mean, there were silly things like women were not allowed to sign checks without signing their husband's name. And she was not using her husband's name. So there was a big problem with her signing official documents with her own name. And she had to go to court and get it all straightened out saying, yes, this is legally my name. I can sign these documents and not as Mrs. Paul Wilson. So there's a lot of things she had to smooth out before she got going. Well, speaking of smoothing out, this is the goal at hand for the entirety of Roosevelt's first term. The amount of programs coming out of this White House branched out in every direction at the same time. And Francis served as a big picture component in most of the propositions that were put forward. FDR said in his first address, I'm prepared to recommend strict measures to a stricken nation in the middle of a stricken world. And he called Congress into an unprecedented 100-day session. And everyone in the administration buckled down to work on the nation's problems. From those first 100 days came a cavalcade of legislation. Some of the key programs Francis was involved with were the Civilian Conservation Corps, It put a quarter of a million men to work by the summer. So the inaugural was in March, and by the summer, they had a quarter of a million men at work. They were planting trees, working on erosion projects, fighting forest fires. By the end of this program, 2.5 million men had been employed by this program by the end of its run. And also, in defiance of all regular standards, the Civilian Conservation Corps employed Black men, 200,000 black men were employed, and Georgia had balked at this inclusion. Francis Perkins threatened to just pull the whole program out of Georgia then. That's fine. Your choice. She wasn't playing. <laughs> no. like, either you take the whole thing or no thing, and I actually don't care which one. So, Things that this organization did are still enacted today, but just by the end of this, they planted two billion, that's with a B, two billion trees and created 800 state parks with her just see point that is something that visitors to our country often remark on Mm -hmm. and you know we might take it a little bit for granted the prevalence of state parks and national parks that have been just reserved for wilderness use Mm -hmm. yeah trails and maintenance and just thought given to scenic overlooks and preservation of the streams so Without a lot of this Conservation Corps work, it just wouldn't be there for us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, FDR gets credit for this because he was at the head of the table, you know, the buck stops here and all that. But this is kind of how the conversation would go. And not just for this program, but for everything that Francis is going to do for entire career here. He would call her in and say, look, I think we need to send the unemployed out to do forestry work for the government. And Francis was like, oh, that's a great idea. Um, Just tell me, where are these unemployed people currently living? Well, they're in the cities. They're on the bread lines. Well, I see. And are they all strong and healthy enough for that type of physical labor? Oh, just pay them a dollar a day. Use the unemployment service. And she said, well, you just told me to dismantle the unemployment service. It was one of my objectives. So you want me to use the unemployment service that's not currently back in operation. And all he said is, make another one, he said. Start a new one, right? And get it done, Francis. I know you can. Just keep me updated, which kind of is the best kind of boss. 
saying, I know that you see what the problems are and I can't see anything but the big picture. It's your job to find all the pieces and put that puzzle together. I would like to say that women had a greater part in this and unfortunately not. But it was with the insistence and involvement of Eleanor Roosevelt that 8,500 women were enrolled into this program. Unfortunately, the press got a hold of it. And instead of the CCC, they called it the she, she, she. And there was, you know, there were aspersions cast on the morality. And is there this? And are they husband hunting? And it was just nonsense. And they had to slog through a lot to get there. But ultimately, 8,500 women were also involved. The principle with all of this program was that people wanted to work. They wanted to have, you know, value to feel important. And then they were able to buy from others, thus producing more opportunities and thus it snowballs. And that's the whole premise of many of these programs. The same with the Federal Emergency Relief Organization, which later, of course, became the WPA, which started out as the Works Progress Administration, but got renamed a year after as the Work Projects Administration, which is actually harder to say, but it doesn't matter because everyone just called it the WPA. Frances brought in one of her protégés to head this up, and they made soup kitchens and provided childcare and arts programs and construction projects and adult education. By the way, the person that was put in charge of the WPA was the second most powerful woman in this administration. By the way, her name was Ellen Sullivan Woodward, and she got half a million women employed in the WPA. So good for her. She made it happen. Eleanor Roosevelt opened the door with Frances Perkins, and Ellen Woodward walked everybody through. Frances Perkins, though, determined which projects were put through, like post offices, schools, road improvements, housing projects. They ran 1.5 to 2 million people through that program the very first year of its existence. And I would like to tell you that no matter where you are in the country, you are probably, if not a baseball throw, at least a very, very short car ride away from a project that the WPA was involved in completing. So those projects are literally all around you. And I'll provide you at the end with a map um, where you can kind of look around you and see. I was actually just at the soda store. Uh, My city runs to a soda store. Okay. In uh, a place called the City Market downtown, there's a store that sells nothing but soda and it all goes by color. It's pretty amazing to go in there. And it's from all over the world or whatever. And anyway, that's not the point. I came out and looked up at where my car was parked and the stone retaining wall had a WPA plaque on it. Wow. So I thought that was pretty amazing. So you just never know. It's it's just all around you. And there was an alphabet soup of organizations. If you put all the letters in a can and shook them and poured it out. You'd probably come up with all of these. We're not going to go into all of them. Um, We can provide you with some links to all the different ways the administration tried to turn this great cruise ship of America around. I will leave you with the comedy one, though. The Cullen Act. FDR wanted to allow 3-2 beer again ahead of that 21st Amendment being passed. We're still in the middle of prohibition. And FDR said, it is time to have a beer. And so the Cullen Act was signed into law on April 7th, which is still National Beer Day in America. If you check those little calendars, like today's Donut Day, today's whatever day, April 7th is National Beer Day because of FDR and his impatience to have a beer. 
Oh my gosh. I hope I remember this on April 7th. I had no idea. <laughs> Put a note in your phone to give you a reminder on April 6th. Oh, oh, that's excellent. Okay. I will do that. I will almost guarantee you Frances Perkins had not one thing to do with no. that. Although she did drink rye. She was a rye drinker, at least later in her life. I'm not sure she was a beer drinker. No. No. I don't know. I can actually see her with a cold one, but. So professionally, Frances is getting things done. She's orchestrating all these programs, but there's something that's not working for her in that she has no support in her personal life in Washington. She's still commuting back and forth to her family in New York City. She didn't really have a home base in Washington. She had rented some rooms, but it wasn't her house. And in Washington, she quickly found out that a lot of politics doesn't happen at those board tables or in the offices. It happens at cocktail parties, dinner parties, dances, golf course. The social aspect of being a politician, she just couldn't get her hand around. Even things as simple as politicians' wives, the protocol was to go calling on the women of Washington, D.C. and presenting their calling cards, you know, just like in the Gilded Age time. But there was no place for these women to call on Frances because she didn't have a home. Enter one of her old friends, Mary Harriman Rumsey. The two went way back to the early New York City days. They had worked together on those maternity care centers in New York that Frances had helped form after she had had Susanna. And at one time, Frances even lived at one of Mary's estates with Mary while they were working on a project. One of her estates... Where there was a lot of estates. Mary Harriman Rumsey came from an extraordinary wealthy family. Her father made his money in the railroads. As a matter of fact, their house in upstate New York on 20,000 acres had a private railroad that ran from there down to New York so they could go to their city houses or out to their Long Island house. That's the level of money that they had. Now, Mary Harriman Rumsey... She was well-educated. She's about the same age as Frances. When she got to New York City, she had been working in the settlement homes, and she helped form an organization called the Junior League for the Promotion of Settlement Movements, which we know now as the Junior League. It's still in existence. So she was one of the founders of that. She had been married. She had children. Unfortunately, she had been widowed in the early 1920s. So she had wealth from her family. She had wealth from her husband, and she had no desire to get remarried again. She also was appointed by FDR to chair the Consumer Advisory Board. Um, it was the first government consumer rights organization. So she has to go live in Washington. So she says, Francis, why don't you come and share a house with me? And Francis says, well, we'll share expenses. And Mary's like, sure, we will. Sure, sure, sure. So Frances moved in with Mary. And what Mary was extraordinarily good at was being a socialite and throwing parties and putting people together. And that's what she did with Frances. They lived together. And finally, Frances had the emotional support that she needed to play politics in Washington, D.C. And if you were to read... Most of this book's written about Frances Perkins. Something will pop in right now. What a stroke of good fortune that her old friend Mary Rumsey offered to let her share expenses in her octagon-shaped house in Georgetown. How nice. 
How delightful. The servants keep the house, there's no worries, and the women have each other for company. What good friends they are. <laughs> uh, but now it's relatively clear to us that Frances Perkins and Mary Rumsey had what might be termed in a G-rated podcast as a relationship. She had met her all the way back in those maternity hospital days. It is thought that this actually might have stretched back over a decade, this relationship. And together, they gave dinner parties that are a mix and match of the society of the day. Will Rogers, personal friend Eleanor Roosevelt, poets, photographers, army generals, politicians, and titled aristocracy. Don't you want to be there? Talk about networking <laughs> with, your, with your pinky up. Of course, mm -hmm. of course. Even Francis's daughter, Susanna, would come down on the weekends or school holidays. And Susanna considered Mary her second mother. That's how close she was to this woman. Because of Mary, Susanna was able to have a proper Deb season in New York City, you know, be presented to society. Susanna that year was named one of New York City's best dressed women. Yeah. And so think of Frances Perkins. I don't know whose influence is making her the best dressed. So maybe that is the influence of Mary Rumsey. Yes, that's what I'm that's what I'm suggesting. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. yeah. Now, how much of all of this was unknown by the visitors to their house, their personal friends? It's hard to tell. But Mary, unfortunately, died after a fall from her horse at only 53 years of age. I'm very sorry to say it wasn't an instant death. It took her a month of deterioration. She had suffered a injury to her liver that nobody identified in time, probably with modern x-rays. It could have been caught and turned around. But alas... When Mary Rumsey died, Frances didn't feel like she could mourn her properly. Even after these 12 years, the risk, the publicity was too great. Mm -hmm. It yeah. was a grievous wound, a grievous wound that she had to suffer in, in silence. Yeah. Well, her friends knew how close they were, you know, what their relationship actually was. And they did write to Frances and there exists still some letters saying that they understood the level of grief that she was experiencing right now. So that must have been uh, a little comforting to her to know that, you know, she wasn't just, you know, bouncing around alone while all the Harriman Rumsey family, you know, mourned that way. She had her group, her social group that was helping her through grief at this time. But behind closed doors. Right. And we can't pinpoint exactly what the relationship was like. Frances did destroy a lot of her personal correspondence, and Mary's was stored in a warehouse, I think, but it had caught fire. So her personal correspondence was destroyed. So it would be awesome if we could sit here and read some love letters, but none exist. Well, turning to a happier scenario, FDR that same year asked Frances Perkins to head the Committee on Economic Security and working toward her list, her checklist. Frances Perkins hammered out legislation on workers' comp, old-age pensions, unemployment insurance, and aid to the disabled, a little thing that you might know as the Social Security Act. I'm very sorry to say that one of her most keenly wished-for programs had to be shelved right out of the gate. As a part of the proposed Social Security Act, Frances had mentioned... Uh, in an interview that they planned to include a national health insurance in the legislation. 
And the firestorm of protest from doctors was so great, so angry. The lobbyists for the medical industry, members of Congress, FDR and Frances Perkins herself were the recipients of such anti-federal health insurance telegrams and personal visitors that it threatened to derail the whole Social Security bill. And they reluctantly removed that initiative from the bill, intending to come back to it later. People were already kind of having a hard time understanding how Social Security worked. The mandatory nature of both things were freaking people out. And so really, one of them had to go. And it was a bummer. It's a bummer for me, even today. Mm. Well, Frances Perkins traveled to give speeches to educate and appeared on the radio and people thought her accent was put on. You know, nobody sounds like that until they realized when JFK took to the airwaves, oh, some Americans do talk like that. Americans heard that <laughs> accent. It's almost British, her accent. I can't wait till you hear it. Mass production of many years. You know, it's, it's amazing. Really? I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole on that accent, and it turns out it mostly comes from elocution lessons. So how about that? Um, And you can still hear her speeches on YouTube. Luckily, she grew up in the modern era, and we can hear what she has to say. Here's part of the text of one speech, not with her accent. It may come as a surprise to many of us that we in this country should be so far behind Europe in providing our citizens with those safeguards which assure a decent standard of living in both good times and bad. But the reasons are not far to seek. We are much younger than our European neighbors. Our abundant pioneer days are not very far behind us. With unlimited opportunities in those days for the individual who wished to take advantage of them, dependency seemed a reflection on the individual himself rather than the result of social or economic conditions. It has taken the rapid industrialization of the last few decades with its mass production methods to teach us that a man might become a victim of circumstances far beyond his control. And finally, it took a depression to dramatize for us the appalling insecurity of the great mass of the population and to stimulate interest in social insurance in the United States. In 1935, the Social Security Act was signed into law And you know how they have those big ceremonies for signing things like this and all the people that were involved are in the background and the president signs and they each get a pen for the thing. Mm -hmm. Well, Frances had organized this signing ceremony because this was her baby. What she didn't do was have a pen for herself. And FDR is like, Frances, where's your pen? Oh, I, I don't need one. And FDR's like, yeah, you do. And he sent his secretary out to find one for her so that she, too, could have a souvenir of this monumental occasion. I often wonder if you just randomly, like in an antique store or in the drawer of an estate sale, find a White House pen, mm-hmm. if you might be holding a piece of history, but there's just no way to tell. No. The secret history of the White House. (laughs) Well, and I do want to point out that while all this amazing things are happening professionally and to the country in her personal life, she's still dealing with, you know, issues with her family. Right after the signing of the Social Security Act, she got on a train and went up to New York because her husband was missing. No one could find him. He had wandered away. So she had to sign this thing, go home and find her husband on the streets of New York. This is all going on the entire time. We can focus on 
her uh, professional accomplishments, but she's also dealing with all these. It's like that scene from The Princess Bride. What is it? The the Forest of Fire. I forgot the name of it. <laughs> with the rodents of yeah. unusual size. Right. It's just like one thing flares up and it goes down and then another thing flares up and you don't know where it's going to be coming from other than the ground, you know. So that's her life. are in sort of a a low point. We are looking for our missing husbands in New York. I wanted also to talk about an arm of the Department of Labor that caused Francis the most controversy, the Bureau of Immigration and Naturalization, which I have to say she tried repeatedly to have moved out from under her umbrella. I mean, all the time. In fact, she tried to set it up so that it would run autonomously without her. That's how much she did not want to be involved with it. Although. She still did an amazing job. A few things about this department. At the very beginning, an Australian immigrant named Mr. Bridges had led a strike in California that angered the public. It caused some violence. It caused a couple of deaths. And public sentiment was for deportation of this agitator. But Francis and her whole department found no legal method, no legal reason to deport this man. Even Congress looked for a loophole. And when they failed, Instead, they decided to focus on Francis and begin impeachment proceedings or talking about it against her for, quote, defrauding the United States by coddling and protecting from deportation certain aliens. Luckily, question mark, at this point, there was a very similar case making its ever so slow way up to the Supreme Court. And so that was to decide this scenario also. But the rumors began that Francis Perkins was a communist, like this man, Mr. Bridges, evidently the worst thing you can be on earth, which I never understand. But the effort to remove her just went to a simmer and also simmering some trouble in Europe. Francis was very concerned for the Jewish refugees who were trying to flee an increasingly fraught situation in Europe and found a loophole that would allow more of them to come to America. It involved sort of a prepayment. The people that wanted to come would provide a bond, like almost like a ransom, and the government would hold it until these people could prove they were not going to be a public charge, you know, like not a burden on American money, which was the ostensible argument against them coming in the first place. The State Department, her colleagues were infuriated at her and said she was overstepping her authority and blocked her from executing those plans. The United States State Department held some very strong anti-Semitic views during this time period. In fact, it had already cut off a lot of immigration at its source in Europe and then would say, well, there's no one on the wait list. There's no need to change the quotas because the quotas aren't even being filled. It's because they've made it so hard to jump through all these hoops. And as you move closer and closer to 1938, the increased pressure from the Jewish people desperate to escape the Nazi regime, they kept firm to its small by-country quotas and demanded paperwork that people fleeing or in hiding had very little chance of producing. At one point in 1938, the waitlist just from Germany 
was over 300,000 people. One of the families denied entrance by this strategy was Anne Frank's, by the way, if you would like to put a human face on it. And Frances was livid. She said, the right of asylum is American tradition. She's a lone reed standing tall, waving boldly in the corrupt sands of immigration. Right? How's that for another movie reference? But despite the formidable opposition, Frances Perkins did what she could. She worked with a children's aid association to set up a way to receive 400 Jewish children under that sort of same kind of loophole, although she involved a corporation paying for them to come over. She was able to disassemble these squads of INS agents that were wandering neighborhoods, pinching people to deport. She said they were terror squads. They remind me a lot of the slave patrols that would go up north and Uh kidnap people and take them back into slavery. That's, but she was able to be like, we do not operate this way. We are by the book. We are not goons. We are not going to do this anymore. Immigration was such a hot button issue then. Even her allies in labor were afraid of competition for jobs. They were worried that an influx of desperate workers would lower wage gains that they'd achieved. And the newspapers were against her too. A scurrilous rumor ran through the more unsavory of them that Frances Perkins was not, in fact, Frances Perkins, nor was she Mrs. Paul Wilson. She was really a Jewish immigrant named Matilda Wutzke. For this, she even went so far as to make a public statement, which is not something that she normally would do. She at one point said something about, I don't have a flair for publicity. She's not cozy with reporters. But this time she felt she needed to address it because it was so loud. And what she said, if I were a Jewess, I would make no secret of it. On the contrary, I would be proud to acknowledge it. So she had to deny it, but she denied it saying, look, I'm not one, but if I was, that would be great. She was very shocked not to be thought to be a Jewish person, but by the fact that this obvious appeal to racial prejudice, you know, hate her because she is Jewish, was able to take such hold. It actually made her very upset that it was so easy to turn people against her. You know, Mm -hmm. with a lie. I'm not explaining myself very well. Sure, it was a lie. And it it didn't even matter to her that it was against her. What mattered was that the weapon used was an appeal to people's racism. Racism. Yeah. But she was kind of appalled that that's where we were getting to. In 1938, Frances Perkins convinced FDR to extend temporary tourist visas so that approximately 15,000 Jewish people could stay safely in the United States indefinitely and obviously saved their lives. So if Frances Perkins had done nothing else, she saved 15,000 lives, most likely. Mm -hmm. In 1939, those impeachment proceedings revived themselves, possibly as a direct result of those 15,000 visa extensions. People in the State Department were very, very angry about this. House Resolution 67, a resolution for the impeachment of Francis Perkins, Secretary of Labor, was brought by the House Un-American Activities Committee, a particularly loathsome but charismatic congressman, used this issue to publicly vilify and shame Francis Perkins in the press, trying to turn her former supporters against her. It was sort of shocking 
how everyone's absolute confidence in her was able to turn to doubt and suspicion. Cartoons appeared in the newspaper. Articles were written about her. Editorials were published. This, however, you should know, is the same organization that later blacklisted Harry Belafonte, Charlie Chaplin, Orson Welles, Dorothy Parker, Arthur Miller, Gypsy Rose Lee, and Burl Ives. I mean, they were coming after Santa. Santa! All of the press going around about now, um, Susan and I have both just read Spare. Prince Harry wrote a memoir, and in the latter parts of that memoir, he talks about the way the press went after his wife, Meghan Markle. And no matter what she did, it wasn't correct, and it would be spun away because that would sell papers. Right. Um, the same thing happened to Frances Perkins. A reporter would ask her, so what does FDR think about this situation? And she says, I haven't consulted him yet. And the headline would read, Perkins refuses to consult the president. Yeah, if they're not just making things up, they're taking and spinning everything just to be scandalous. There were so many similarities between her and the media and all the press that was swirling around her as there was for Prince Harry. It kept like jumping out at me. She got names in the press like Madame Tootsie Roll, the number one donkey on FDR's merry-go-round, an old maid, Virgin Mary, Princess Pinky, which I never I understood. <laughs> and a dainty piece of fluff. Uh, it was nonsense. And speaking of nonsense, this whole case was nonsense. Everyone in that room knew it. And of course, it was dismissed for lack of evidence. And so the pre-hearing was loud and the dismissal and acquittal was very, very quiet. Mm -hmm. Not cool. Not cool. And one congressman of merit who had never even met her got up and gave this speech in the House chambers. After months of nationwide publicizing of unjust and unfounded charges against a public official, the final result is heralded by no blare of trumpets and is scarcely brought to the notice of the public, which for months and months has been fed with promises that a national public official would be shown to have been guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors and of betrayal of public trust, warranting the infliction of the official death penalty. It is to be regretted that a case which thundered so long and loudly in the index has now dwindled to less than a whisper in the text. I guess his point was, why don't you make the acquittal as loud as the accusation? Yeah. Because never happened. No. And it would never would. I mean, that repeats itself over and over and over again in history. And, you know, you don't even have to go back that far. Probably last week, something like that happened, you know. So back to two good events. Can we just step back one year? It was hard to know. When I was telling you all about immigration, where exactly to put this, but there was in the background a giant silver lining. In 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed, in which it established a minimum wage. It established maximum work hours of 40 with time and a half pay for any hours over 40 and successfully banned child labor. And she gets the notes app out on her phone and checks, checks checks. That's three more right. down. Yep. She is just whittling that list down. Uh, another thing good that happened that year is that her daughter, Susanna, who'd had a lot of trouble in college, had her own episodes, um, of may perhaps of mental illness of some sort. She had a rough time through this particular era of her life, but Susanna finally got married. 
She married a man named David Hare. He was a photographer. The two had grown up together in New York City. Francis didn't think that this was the greatest match. And to try and dissuade her, Francis took Susanna to Europe. And that didn't do it. So when they came back, she gave her blessing, helped her throw a big wedding in New York. And shortly after that, David began to do photography work using some of Francis's contacts. Francis helped to get him established in his career. So at least she could, uh, it's not a check, you know, you don't check your kids off, but at least she felt comfortable that Susanna was in a, in a good place in her life. And that was something else that was good this year. The year afterward, the Immigration and Naturalization Service was moved from her Department of Labor to the Department of Justice, a move if you remember me saying that Ms. Perkins herself had requested a long time ago. This might be seen by her, actually, as a reward, though her enemies were super happy at her, quote, demotion. Was so fine with her, you don't even know. Hooray for getting out of the spotlight with this contentious and fraught Department of Immigration. Ah, okay, we can't rest for five minutes because suddenly the nation was on the verge of war and it was industry versus union all over again with a lot of moving parts. Management wanted the rules bent on hours and pay because of wartime emergencies. And unions were freaking out about all of that and all of the new workers flooding into the system. Francis got right to work, making lists and objectives. She wrote, We have to perform and act what we already know to be right. There's no time to learn anything now. Great profits for industrial investment and enterprise must be given up for the duration. This is hard doctrine, but it's necessary. There is to be no jurisdictional strike or stoppage. The AFL and the CAO may not fight. They must divide the field. I will provide no obstacle to work permits for the duration, for it is all of the people who are the paying the bills, and it is some of our people who are paying with their lives for the safety of the rest of us. We must get to work. She was traveling from here to there, settling labor disputes. There was just a lot of energy that people didn't know what to do with. And this is hearkening back to her old days in the Industrial Commission in New York. How do you feel, Ms. Perkins, about all these strikes happening right when the nation needs all these workers? And she said, I don't feel any way about strikes in defense industries. They're a symptom. They're not the disease. How many times do I have to tell you? I am a doctor performing an operation. I feel no emotional way about defense workers striking. They have a concern and I go to hear it. She's very practical. People were trying to get head up about defense workers striking. Like, how dare they in our time of emergency? She's like, they're also experiencing a time of emergency. Right, right, right. Like, <laughs> so let's just simmer down. Yeah, let's not do us and them for a while. At Francis's urging, Roosevelt created a war labor board just to mediate these disputes, just in a very fast and unencumbered way. It was a very swift moving, fast acting department to which Francis appointed one of her protégés. So she took care of that without having to be personally involved after a while. Another thing that Francis oversaw was a PR campaign. Because all these women were going onto the factory lines. She needed to encourage the women and encourage the factory owners to accept these women, to train them properly so they wouldn't get hurt, and just to make the two work cohesively. 
Part of this campaign was a woman that we are all familiar with now, Rosie the Riveter. Now, Frances Perkins didn't invent Rosie the Riveter. She was already in, what's the word, zeitgeist? Is that the right word? You always use Yeah. Yeah. Rosie the Riveter had been the subject of a song about women going back to work on the factory lines. Okay, this is so bad. I'm sorry. All the day long, whether rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, the Riveter. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm thinking of that first Captain America when he was selling war bonds. And that's that, like. I- this song, I put it in the show notes. There's a little video of it. It's so cute. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, with some of the lyrics, it's just, they're just awesome. I'm not going to sing it. Keeping a sharp lookout for sabotage, sitting on the fuselage. Mm, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good rhyme. So without Frances Perkins, would we really have Rosie the Riveter? I don't know. Frances Perkins was then free to fall back even further to her settlement housework and worked to get local agencies to arrange childcare, transportation, medical care, other services to the women who suddenly flooded into the labor market. She went on visits to factories, put hard hats on to go down in some mines. Like the only time she ever took her work hat off (laughs) was briefly to put a hard hat on. And she liked to shake hands and meet people and talk and hear their stories like in the olden days. So that's what she was doing. And also sitting on committees, arranging conferences, giving speeches, mediating interdepartmental spats, and counseling FDR this whole time. She had a lot going on. And she's still looking forward because she was looking ahead to the end of the war making sure that none of these programs, these, you know, workers' protections and employment services would be dismantled because of the chaos that was happening during the war. So she's handling what's on her plate and she's looking ahead to what's going to be coming up on, you know, in the future. In 1944, the war was still raging when FDR won his unprecedented fourth term. Now, true, he'd also had an unprecedented third term, but you would be kind of a fool to dethrone a wartime president that was handling his business. So the fourth term was a little more unexpected. Frances Perkins decided it was time to submit her resignation. And it was a classic five-page document (laughs) that listed her accomplishments and ended with one last nag, as he put it. With one major exception, all the items we discussed as among the practical possibilities before you took office as president have been accomplished or begun. That exception is a social security item providing for some form of benefit to persons whose loss of income is due to sickness and provision for appropriate medical care for the same. I hope this will be upon your agenda for the near future. If only Frances had had a crystal ball, she could look forward to the 1960s when Medicaid would be enacted in the United States. Ah, so sometimes things just have to percolate for a while. Her? Well, you know what else percolated for a while was that letter of resignation, which for a man that prided himself on emptying his inbox every day, it sat for a suspiciously long time. I'm talking for months before he answered her about it. And he said, that is a tremendously interesting letter of yours. 
It shows concisely and clearly all you've accomplished in the Department of Labor. There are many other things to do. Your resignation is not one of them. It is hereby declined. Indeed, it is rejected. It is refused. Okay. (laughs) I guess I'm not leaving then? This is not the first time that she tried to resign, and this is not the first time that FDR declined to accept it. But this is the first time that she's like, look, we did everything. You know, I've done everything that I said I wanted to do. We did it together. Let me go. Let me pack up my office. She actually thought he was going to accept it. You know, she was ready to go. She had everything ready for the next guy. She was out the door as far as she was concerned. And he said, look, Francis, I can't think of anybody that would replace you. And she wrote to a friend, I feel as if I must stand by him until this pressure and stress were over. When the war load has lightened, maybe the question can be opened again. But a few short months later, while sitting for a portrait, Franklin Delano Roosevelt died of a cerebral hemorrhage and Francis Perkins was in the room to witness Vice President Harry S. Truman being sworn into office. I think that it's sad that FDR had taken the country through the Depression and to this point in the war. He dies on April 12th. On May 7th, Germany surrenders. It was so close. He just missed it. Well, she did renew her resignation to the new president and spent her last weeks in office summarizing, theorizing, writing lists, opinions, and dossiers for her successor. She was able to go to a farewell dinner a departmental-wide farewell dinner in which she shook 1,800 hands. And Truman sent in a telegram of praise for her years of accomplishment. I salute you as a great humanitarian. I thank you on behalf of the American people for the great work you have done so selflessly and so capably. I'm just going to put an exclamation point on this. She had served as Secretary of Labor for 12 years. At this point, she is 65 years old. and at a point where someone would say it's time to retire, Frances wasn't ready to retire. She spent the next year writing a biography of FDR called The Roosevelt I Knew. Um, and that's actually not the first book she wrote. She wrote a book in 1934, 270 pages, called People at Work. <laughs> um, because she had all this time. I don't yeah. know where high-achieving people get all this time. It's almost like The busier someone is, the more they can do. I don't know. It's a very weird calculation. Mm -hmm. Francis might have understood it, but I don't. That book, by the way, you can still get even a signed copy I saw for a relatively reasonable price. A first edition of People at Work was under $100 at Abe Books. Unfortunately, the Roosevelt I knew is not in the same scenario. It was a bestseller. It was definitely um, a hot commodity. It was a portrait of a president by a friend Mm -hmm. and an admirer and an ally. And everyone was very interested in this president. And it was almost like a behind the scenes type of thing. Very attractive. And I want to give a shout out. There was a ghostwriter on it um, because there was kind of a race for FDR biographies at this point. You know, he just died. He'd done all this stuff. And the publishers wanted to get this one out soon because they knew it was going to be special. And so Francis was able to work with the ghostwriter. So she didn't do it entirely alone. But if you read it, it's definitely in her voice. But Francis still wasn't done working and the government wanted her back. Truman appointed her to co-lead the Civil Service Commission, a position she's going to hold for the next 
six years. So you do the math. (laughs) Now, Harry Truman was in a bit of a pickle because the only woman that he had in his administration that reported directly to him was the woman that was co-chairing the Civil Service Commission. And then when she resigned, he was left with no female direct reports. And it was not good PR. And he immediately reached out to her. He admired her greatly. Anytime he met her, he'd cross a room, especially to shake her hand. You know, Mm -hmm. he really did value her work. I would like to tell you the Senate confirmed her in less than a minute. I don't know if that's a record, but that is mighty good. She went to visit the agencies. She gave speeches. She networked. And the weirdest thing happened. She became... Uh, what am I going to say? Personable and sparky in a way that she'd never been before to the point where an audience member said, this lady's better than Bob Hope. <laughs> I mean, that is high praise. Indeed. People loved her. And there was one thing. I mean, it's, I'm going to be a Phantom Cadillac, too, by the way. I'm only going to get shorter and I'm already on the five foot line. So but she would get up to a podium which, of course, was meant for men folk, And she would say in a loud, booming voice, never fear, it is I. <laughs> and then everyone would laugh because all they could see was the top of her hat. <laughs> anyway, it was pretty cute. She'd break the ice easy. And she said to a friend, people are very ready to be happy about what you did after you're no longer a hazard to them. I endured a lot while I was in office, but now, how funny, but how very nice. One of the things she was responsible for in this position was to help streamline operations and offices. She had said, I sometimes think we're all like the file clerk who made himself indispensable by filing everything in the wrong place and then finding it. I would like to know if Frances Perkins and Lillian Gilbreth ever met. I know. I, want- I would be very interested to know that. Frances Perkins actually had an um, ergonomic office chair way before that was a thing. And People kept coming in her office to sit in her chair and like dudes kept buying them because she had one. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if Lillian Gilbreth had given her that chair? Oh, wow. That's a great story to put out there. (laughs) I did want to point out that uh, her streamlining operations really goes way back. And this fact totally blew my mind. As part of setting up the Social Security Administration, all Americans had to get Social Security cards. It was considered the largest bookkeeping operation in the world to log all these names, issue all these cards, keep track of everything. And way back in 1936, Francis's Social Security Administration was using IBM processors and collating machines with the punch cards Mm -hmm. to issue 26 million Social Security cards and for record keeping. IBM was in government offices in 1936. That is an early adopter. So forget the ergonomic chair. It wasn't that impressive in comparison. (laughs) But I will tell you, okay, I do have a funny story about Social Security cards, though. Okay, so when a person would go buy a wallet at a luggage store or a TGNY or Woolworths or wherever one bought wallets, it would often have as a demonstration of what you could do with this window, a fraudulent Social Security card with a fake number. That was just number. People literally started using those as their social security number, leading to a clerical error of enormous proportions. Like, why do all these people have the same social security number? (laughs) 
I think the disclaimers on some things are there for a reason, but some people were not getting that. It didn't just come in your wallet that you buy. (laughs) Oh, I wondered how I was going to get this card. Great. Here it is. I heard about this thing. Yeah. (laughs) That's hysterical. I don't even know how much of a period of silence I would have to have if I were Frances Perkins hearing this for the first time. (laughs) So professionally, she's still working and doing things great. But again, she's having those fires in her family. Susanna had divorced her first husband, but by the end of the war, she had remarried again. She'd become a stepmom of three and had a child of her own. But unfortunately, around this time, Paul also passed away. A few weeks later, Frances Perkins submitted her letter of resignation to her third president that she worked for, Dwight Eisenhower. She couldn't, of course, go totally grandma, even though she made a point of spending time with her grandchildren when she could. She was a visiting professor at several Midwestern universities. And then she got a great offer that she couldn't refuse. Oh, my gosh. This is my absolute favorite thing that she ever did, which is I don't know if I should say that or not. She was hired to teach at Cornell University's new school of labor and industry. That alone is perfect. Frances Perkins teaching the next generation everything that she knew and things that she was foreseeing for the future. But that wasn't enough. She was invited by a group of men that were on scholarship to live in their house as a guest in residence. She's 80 years old and she's essentially a house mom to all these college students. She is taking care of the gardens. She is cooking them lobster dinners. She's holding salons just for them and and having all this interesting conversation flowing. And the thing is that these guys loved her as much as she loved being there. I love this image of her. It's like a reward for all the hard work that she did. She loved the intellectual environment. The fact that these young men would argue concepts late into the night. And she just was so taken with the fact that they are coming to social justice just at the beginning of their career. And she once told them, and I quote, This is not something to be accomplished before breakfast. It will take years, and the enthusiasm and courage of youth can do much in winning the support of public opinion. You should challenge yourself. What is my duty? There is always a large horizon, much to be done in all of the world, and I'm not going to be the one doing it. It's up to you to contribute some small part to a program of human betterment for all time. Passing the torch. Love it. Of her work. She had said uh, repeatedly that this was the happiest time in her life. She was the first woman that had been invited to live there. It's a place called Telluride House. She was not the last woman, however, to live there. It does seem like a nice little coda. They took care of her like a whole cadre of grandsons, too. You know, she was taking care of them with the dinners and the salons and everything. But they were also keeping an eye on her. So they were able to see you know, noticed that her eyesight was starting to fail and that she's shrinking even more physically and that her health isn't so great. In 1962, she was transported to a very sad occasion. Her friend, Eleanor Roosevelt, had died. That same year, also in Washington, D.C., there was the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Department of Labor. And the new president, President Kennedy, was expected to just come in, deliver his speech, and roll out of there because that was his M.O. But he came especially 
30 minutes early just so he could meet Francis Perkins. And in his speech, he said, The program which Madam Perkins put forward when she became Secretary of Labor are things which we now take for granted in both political parties, but they were regarded as dangerous and revolutionary and things which must be fought for in the short space of 30 years ago. They were controversial, and Madam Perkins, who looked so quiet and peaceful and sweet, was also one of the most controversial, dangerous figures that ever roamed the United States in the 1930s. JFK was a Francis Perkins fanboy. Love it. Unfortunately, we know what happened to Kennedy and in 1964. In January of 1965, Frances found herself at another presidential inauguration, this one for Lyndon Johnson. But Frances caught a cold and she just couldn't shake it. The cold eventually developed into pneumonia, which she was hospitalized for. And it was there in the hospital that she suffered a series of strokes and died on May 14, 1965, at the age of 85 years old. Her will, insurance, and detailed instructions for her funeral were found in her handbag, where she had been carrying them for over a decade, quote, so as not to be any trouble to anyone. How very Francis of her. <laughs> she had been an extremely devout Episcopalian and had her had her funeral service at her church, the Church of the Resurrection in New York City. She was ultimately buried between her parents and Paul in the Perkins Family Cemetery in Newcastle, Maine, near her beloved brick house. Her headstone says the following. Francis Perkins Wilson, 1880 to 1965, Secretary of Labor, 1933 to 1945. That work was so important to her that she asked Susanna to have it carved into her headstone. Although we both noticed that the word Wilson crept in somehow. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand how a woman who had fought to keep her maiden name, her name herself for her entire life and really never referred to herself as Mrs. Wilson is suddenly Mrs. Wilson on her headstone. It's there and she wrote out her instructions. So I have to assume that she had wanted it for some reason, you know, maybe to tie her to Suzanne and her family. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. We'll never know. And I, in fact, don't know if it was in the instructions or if that was um, like a improv by mm. by the people. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, we just thought it was weird that Wilson appeared. I mean, all those tart letters to Mount Holyoke College, uh, you know, yeah. I don't know. Well, that actually ends our coverage of the life of Frances Perkins, but more than anyone we've ever covered, I can definitely point to her legacy. And it's affected each and every one of us in this country. Unemployment insurance, the fact that there is a federal minimum wage, a 40-hour work week, time and a half for overtime, the absence of child labor, your child goes to school instead of the pickle factory, and workplace safety protections that were not in place before Frances Perkins came on the scene. And we can't forget Social Security or any regulation that she enacted against employment discrimination. So this touches our lives today. You know, a lot of places you'll read, oh, she's forgotten. And I don't think she is, which makes me happy. She, she can't be. She did too much. 
1980, the headquarters of the U.S. Department of Labor in Washington, D.C. was named the Francis Perkins Building. Oh, my goodness, Beckett, we have to go there on our field trip to Washington, D.C. We have to go to the Francis Perkins Building. That's true. And at least get our picture there. Mount Holyoke, her alma mater, currently has a program for non-traditional or returning students, usually students who are a little bit older, called the Francis Perkins Program. And there is a coffee shop on campus called the Francis Perk. (laughs) (laughs) I knew about the non-traditional student program. I didn't know about that one until after part one aired. We got a letter from a listener whose daughter, who the day before had been accepted to Mount Holyoke. She wanted us to know that that was there. And I thought that was great. One of the coolest things, in my opinion, a Carnegie library, we've talked about these before. Andrew Carnegie set up a program to have libraries put in towns across the country. So there's a Carnegie library still open in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it was renamed the Francis Perkins Branch. And as early as last year, 2022, a feast day was added to the Episcopalian church calendar for Francis Perkins on May 13th. She has a holiday. <laughs> That's great. And it's not April 7th, which is, again, start with me, National Beer, Beer Day. Day. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to say before we close out and go to media is FDR. You think of him when you think of the New Deal, but at the time, people often called her the architect of the New Deal. So at least during her time period, people recognized her involvement. She was so not a person to toot her own horn in public, although, you know, she wasn't against writing a list of her accomplishments and presenting it to her boss, which is natural and good and and should be followed by all of us if we (laughs) want raises or whatnot. But she was modest in public, I think, maybe to a fault, but she didn't mind if FDR got the credit as long as the work, which she deemed as extremely important to the country, as long as the work got done. And now it's time for media. And as usual, we will start with books. Uh, The primary one that I used is The Woman Behind the New Deal, The Life and Legacy of Frances Perkins, Social Security, Unemployment Insurance, and the Minimum Wage by Kirsten Downey. Uh, We also used a book by her for uh, Queen Isabella, I think, another biography. Hmm. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it dove a little deeper than some of the books that I read, and it was more current. So I always liked that. I think, I don't know why, maybe I'm wrong. I always say that I lose library books, right? I say that a lot. And it's a big joke. And I find them. They're in the trunk of the car or they're beside my bed. Okay, that book, (laughs) I've lost it. It's in the vapor. And I was, I think, traveling around with it. For all I know, it's in the Seattle airport. It is gone. It is G-O-N-E gone to the point where I'm going to have to pay to replace it. In fact, I probably should just order them a new copy. It's gone. I I don't know where else to look. And, you know, we have had it for a month and a half, two months, three months. I think we've actually had it for three months. I do, too. Yeah. Yeah. I ran out of uh, renewals. I didn't want to give it up in case I needed it. We don't have library fines anymore. Wow. I think they discovered it was more administratively to administer the fine structure and the collections of fines than it was to gather them. Interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'll buy two copies of it um, as a little 
Yes. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> um, okay, so I have two other books that I really liked. Frances Perkins, That Woman in FDR's Cabinet by Lillian Holman Moore. That one is very good, very manageable. The heft is nice. Uh, <laughs> you cannot press flowers with it. Unlike Madam Secretary, Frances Perkins, a biography of America's first woman cabinet member by George Martin, which is extraordinarily heavy. And we always joke that the Eleanor Roosevelt books are big and you could <laughs> press a sunflower between its pages. That's how much. And this is one of those. This is very, very thorough. So I guess pick your poison on that. <laughs> I liked them both. Mm. There's a YA version if you'd like to go real slim down. It's um, A Woman Unafraid, The Achievements of Frances Perkins by Penny Coleman. And we've used Penny's books before in the past for research on shows. She hits all the high points, but they're YA books, so there's not a whole lot of detail in them, which is fine. It's good for a general overview. There was a compilation that I used. It's called Nothing to Fear, FDR's Inner Circle and the 100 Days that Created Modern America by Adam Cohen, which is basically what the title says. It was about his inner circle, his closest advisors, including Francis. I guess I'll just provide you a link because we could just list books, list books, list books. Um, yeah. I, I did read uh, several FDR Mm -hmm. um, biographies. So we'll just put those in the show notes. The the last Francis Perkins specific book I read is adorable, adorable, suitable for gift giving. <laughs> it's called The Only Woman in the Photo, Francis Perkins and Her New Deal for America by Kathleen Kroll, illustrated by Alexandra Bai. And it has her in her classic sensible dress and lovely tricorn hat with the pearls around her neck. And it shows her the only woman in the picture of the people that are um, in the cabinet. Highly recommend as a gift for a child. I do love kid biographies so much. The one that I had was uh, Thanks to Francis Perkins, Fighter for Workers by Deborah Hopkinson, illustrated by Christy Caldwell. I just love the idea of reading books that are biographies to kids. My kids loved a book about Ruby Bridges. They had me read it over and over and over again when they were really little. And um, I love that we find them for all of our subjects. As to movies, there is one. It is a documentary that was shown on PBS called Summoned Francis Perkins and the General Welfare. It is a relatively new movie. It premiered in March 2020. I mean... Everyone was at home um, <laughs> sitting on the couch. So that's probably for a home based documentary, um, the very best. Right now, it is on Apple TV for a fee. It is on Amazon Prime for a fee. And then I highly recommend if you have a library card, we always talk about Libby or Overdrive, which is functionally the same thing. There is another service that is free with your library card in most locations. It's called Canopy, K A N. O-P-Y. And it 100% is determined by what your library has chosen to offer there. But that is a place where you can often find documentaries like this. And mm -hmm. a lot of libraries did make that available. So if you have a library card, it's free to sign up and it's, it's free to get those things from the library. Even if you can't get this one, it's worth doing. It's K-A-N-O-P-Y in the App Store. And I don't understand about Samsung phones. I don't know. Android phones. No, it's like okay. Google App Store or something. Got it. Yeah, it's the same thing. Wherever you get your apps, online and in real life, there's the Francis Perkins Center 
in Newcastle, Maine. The brick house, the house that she had grown up in going in the summers to her grandmother's, and she went back there all the time during her entire career, her entire life. It is a National Historic Landmark, and it's also a museum. So they are closed for renovations right now, but online you can travel around and they have so much information on Francis that you'll be delighted that you went there. And if you find yourself in um, southern Maine, (laughs) you should go visit when they open up again. There is a website called the Worcester Women's History Project, and they uh, will provide you a direct link to the Francis Perkins page. But if there is ever a rabbit hole you want to fall down (laughs) about Francis Perkins, they have a lot. It's not the most visually appealing site. It actually kind of looks like, is this a spam situation? Because it just looks like a list of links. And that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But I found, um, you know, I found it very valuable. Also, just um, in a reference to a different part, I have an article from The Guardian about fundamental attribution error, which is the thing that her parents had, you know, poor people are poor because they're lazy type of thing. Also, some links to speeches she gave at the Social Security Administration and on YouTube, you can find other speeches she gave. And to that point, when you listen to her voice, Atlas Obscura had a great article about that accent. Like, what is that accent? Mm -hmm. It's called How a Fake British Accent Took Old Hollywood by Storm. Amazing. And also some articles about her involvement in trying to accept refugees from the Holocaust and how she did, in fact, save lives. Mm -hmm. Um, Although she wished she could have saved more. Did you find that on the National Holocaust Memorial Museum website? Yes. Yes. United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. That's a really good resource, that site, for all things, you know, Holocaust information-wise. And in reference to something I said earlier in this episode, there is a map called the org slash map. Um, and then you can, you can look and see what the New Deal hath wrought in your immediate environment. It's quite great. Very interactive map. I don't have anything else. And in closing, let's leave you with a quote from Frances Perkins from a speech she gave on the radio in 1935, which could be as easily applied today. The process of recovery is not a simple one. We cannot be satisfied merely with makeshift arrangements, which will only tide us over the present emergencies. We must devise plans that will not merely alleviate the ills of today, but will prevent, as far as it is humanly possible to do so, their recurrence in the future. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends, won't you? Or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. We have some exciting news for you. Coming this spring, I mean coming very, very quickly, our intrepid travel impresario, Laura Hart, has put together a spectacular long weekend accessible to us all tour of our nation's capital. We are headed to Washington, D.C., in April. The trip is April 20th through the 23rd, and it is just packed full of women's history. We read the itinerary and we were both like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Let's go now. So visit likemindstravel.com for information and to sign up. And if it's like any of our other trips, um, it's going to sell out fast. 
So uh, if you're thinking about it, just do it. Just sign up, even if it means getting on a wait list. We do have two other trips later this year that they are getting finalized as we speak. So we will talk about those when we have more details, I guess. The plan is to lead the next episode with at least one of those trips. <laughs> the trip so, that, yeah, the trip that you were all waiting for. It's got one tiny little detail that Laura is waiting to pin out or flesh out or fix before we announce it. So we didn't want to announce it and launch it before it was completely ready. So it's so close. So very close. So that's that. Very, very exciting. We do know that Marjorie Merriweather Post's house Hillwood is on the list. Also, the National Museum of African American History and Culture Mm -hmm. is going to be one of the stops. So that is only the tip of the iceberg as to what we are going to do there. And um, we're looking forward to seeing you. I am so excited to go see her gardens in April. All those spring flowers are going to be blooming. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. Even if it's raining, it's going to be beautiful. The song in the middle is Festival Noise by Foresight. And the song at the end is Trailblazer by Kyvin. See you next time. I'm a trailblazer, trailblazer. Nothing's gonna stand in my way.
Trail.